Thanks for checking out the Candeo podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at candeochurch.com. Well, this is our third week in the book of Titus. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Titus. A little helpful thing, if you don't know where Titus is, all of the T books in the New Testament are clumped together. So Thessalonians, Timothy, Titus. It's the last one there. Uh, We'll be in Titus chapter one, but this is our third week in the book of Titus, which is a book that's all about what it looks like for believers and for a church to live a life of gospel-fueled good works. What does it look like for believers, and what does it look like for a church to live lives of gospel-fueled good works? And before this book was ever a book in our Bibles, it was a letter. It was a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a guy named Titus who lived in a, in a little town uh, called Crete, a little island there. And what Paul told Titus to do was to set right what was left undone in the church in Crete. So there was this group of believers. Uh, it wasn't an unreached place, a little group of believers who had begun gathering as a church. And Paul tells Titus, hey, this, these people are not finished yet. They are, un, it, it's a church, albeit, but it's an unhealthy church. And so set right what was left undone. And we saw that the first thing that Paul tells Titus to do in setting right what was left undone, the first thing he tells him to do is to appoint elders in every town, which is really interesting, isn't it? I mean, we, Candeo Church is a church plant. We were planted about 10 years ago. This, uh, I believe it's this September, will be our 10-year anniversary. So 10 years ago, we were planted as a church. And within those 10 years, we've planted three churches, soon to be four churches. And so we really love church planting. When you think of church planting, a lot of things that can often come to mind are a lot of logistics. Things like choosing a place. Are we going to Mankato or are we going to Kansas City? And we're going to Mankato, though I think the Super Bowl, like Stephen was a little, was like, man, the Chiefs won though. So maybe it'll be Kansas City. It won't be Kansas City. It'll be Mankato. Like, where, where are we going to plant this church? Okay, now when we plant that church, where are we going to meet? Are we going to meet in a school? Are we going to meet in a coffee house? Are we going to meet in a community center? Are we going to meet in a bar? Like, where, where are the believers in this place that we're planting? Where are we going to meet? We need to, you know, make a website. We need to secure financial support. We need to, uh, you know, get 501c3 status and all of these things, or student org status on the campus. There's a million things that you think about when you're planting a church, and there's a lot of things to do, and and all those things are fine. They're good, you could say. But what Paul tells Titus, the first thing he tells him to do is to pay attention to make sure that you have the right leaders in place. For all the things you could do, Titus, as you're planting a church, as you're getting a church started, as you're wanting to make it healthy, all those things, and there's a lot of logistics, I'm sure, Make sure that the first thing you do is pay close attention that you establish right leadership. Because here's the thing, where the leaders will go, the church will follow. And who the leaders are, the church will become. Where the leaders go, the church will follow. And who the leaders are, the church will will become, which should be instructive for us as we assess the health of our church. Or maybe perhaps for you, you're still kind of kicking the tires a little bit. You're trying to, you're trying to find a church. You, you kind of like, you've kind of gone around and you've, you've checked places out. Or for students, you'll graduate. And a question you should be asking when you graduate is, what church am I going to be a part of when I graduate and I move somewhere else? 
It may not be a place in our network. There may not be a salt network church there, and that's totally fine. But the question you should be beginning to wrestle with is wherever I go, what church will I be a part of? And so the question is, how do you, how do you assess a church? How do you walk into a church and decide, is this the church that I should be a part of? What should I look for when it comes to choosing a church? Well, it would be wise of us to take a cue from Paul's instruction to Titus that before you consider the music, before you consider the vibe, before you consider the building or the buffet of ministries, right? Do they have a children's ministry? Do they have a youth ministry? Do they have a men's ministry, a women's ministry, a camping ministry, a quilting ministry, a ministry for every little thing that you could possibly do? I'm not even kidding. You say camping and quilting ministry. I've seen churches that have ministries like that. Not necessarily bad, I'm just, it seems a little weird, okay? So, but before you assess all of those things that maybe you would be tempted to assess in a church, before you consider all those things, look at the leaders. Who are the leaders? What kind of people are they? Look at the character of the leaders. Look at who the leaders are, and then... Pay attention to what the leaders teach, who the leaders are and what the leaders teach. Scott pointed out last week as he walked through the qualifications of elders, of those who are called to lead the local churches, that verses five through nine were all of these character traits of who who should these leaders be? And you'll notice some things were missing. They didn't need to be great businessmen. They didn't need to have a lot of you know, clout in the community. There were a lot of things that we would probably put on a job description that we would expect of leaders that Paul actually doesn't put on that job description. But instead, he looks at the character of who those leaders are. But then Scott pointed this out last week. So then the question is, why should leaders in the church be these kinds of people? Why? And he showed us in verse 9, just one verse before our passage, why leaders in the church should be these kind of people. It's so that he will be able to both encourage with sound teaching and refute those who contradict it. So that he can encourage with sound teaching and refute those who contradict it, which then leads us to the question this week, which is, why is this such a big deal? Why should leaders in the church, why should elders be able to encourage with sound teaching and refute those who contradict it. Another word for teaching is doctrine. That's all that that means. Doctrine simply means teaching. And what we're going to see is that right doctrine is confirmed by right living. Right doctrine is confirmed by right living, which means that what you believe is what you believe and how you live are both vitally important and inseparably connected. What you believe and how you live are both vitally important and inseparably connected. You say, what do you mean? Well, for example, it's possible that many of you, perhaps you go, I believe that exercise is very, very good and healthy and should be done. I believe that. You can say that. But you know you, right? And you, you can say that and then never exercise. No guilt trip here, all right? Maybe your New Year's resolution died, you know, at Valentine's Day and that's normal. Like, there can be a disconnect, right, between what we say we believe and then how we actually live. Because the reality is, though, 
that what you believe and how you live are vitally important and inseparably connection because how you live displays what you actually believe. Yes, exercise is good. You, you probably believe that at an intellectual level, but you do not believe that to the extent that it actually changes the way that you live. So why should elders be skilled in the work of teaching sound doctrine and refuting false doctrine? Why should elders give themselves to the, to the belief, to the beliefs and the doctrines that are within the church? Why? Verse 10, here's why. Four, or you could say because. Why should they give themselves over to doctrinal work, to teaching, to sound teaching? Why? Because there are many rebellious people full of empty talk and deception, especially those from the circumcision party, especially those from the circumcision party. Now, who are these people? Well, the circumcision party was a group of Jewish Christians, Jewish Christians, okay? So they weren't like anti-Jesus, but Jewish Christians who insisted that their fellow believers still needed to follow the civil and the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament. And they insisted that Gentiles, so non-Jewish people, that Gentiles who wanted to become Christians needed to first get circumcised. Now you might go, that is the weirdest membership application I've ever seen. That is gross. Why? That's not on our membership application. So if you want to be a member, we do not have that question. Praise God. So, but you go, that's weird. That's gross. What, what is going on? That's the strangest thing I've ever heard in my life. Fair enough. Fair enough. Sure. But stick with me here. You see, there, there are many Christians, and perhaps some of you, that think that the greatest threat to the church and the greatest threat to Christianity exist outside of the church. But the greatest threat to the church are the forces and pressures out there. And while the reality is, is that things like atheism and agnosticism and humanism and postmodernism cer certainly, certainly are threats, what we see Paul doing here with Titus is he's showing him and he's showing us that perhaps the greater problems for the church aren't the obvious false beliefs out there, but are instead the false believers in here. Here's what I mean. Think about it. Crete, by the, by the words of their own prophets, here's what the culture of Crete was like. One of their very own prophets said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And what is Paul using? Who, how, who is Paul describing that of? He's not describing it as of unbelievers out there. He's describing, he's using that description for false teachers in the church. Those who claim to know God, but deny him by their works. Those who claim to be Christians but in fact deny him in their false teaching. You see, these people from the circumcision party didn't have an obviously anti-Jesus theology. They weren't anti-Jesus. It wasn't like no to Jesus. They're like, yeah, Jesus, Jesus is great. They didn't have an obviously anti-Jesus theology, but what they had was an and then Jesus theology. And then Jesus. And you know what and then Jesus theology is? For them, they said that if you wanted to be right with God, you had to adhere to these rules 
and then Jesus. That if you want to be accepted before God, you had to have circumcision and then Jesus. You had to make sure you were doing these things. You had to make sure you were living in this way. You had to have these, these external markers and then you could add Jesus to your life. This was the false teaching. And there are many in the Cedar Valley, and very likely some of you here today, that you have embraced and then Jesus theology. It probably isn't, your, your issue probably isn't circumcision. That's probably true, okay? But maybe your and then Jesus theology is, well, it's church attendance and then Jesus. Or maybe it, it isn't holding to the civil and ceremonial laws of the Old Testament, but instead maybe for you it's attaining a particular moral standard and then Jesus. Maybe you think that you've got to kind of clean up your life a, bit, a little bit and then you can add Jesus into your life. Or maybe for you, you think that people need to vote a particular way and then they're right with Jesus or that they need to affiliate with a particular political party and then they're the real deal Christian. You see, the false teaching that Paul is saying the elders must be able to combat is not the false teaching of irreligion. It's the false teaching of self-righteousness, of thinking that you need to add to the finished work of Jesus which is a massive problem, and here's why. I'll, I'll, I'll use this illustration. I got this from a guy named Mike Diani in Dallas. He said he was recounting the, uh, the historical figure of Alexander the Great, right? And as the story goes, Alexander the Great was one of the greatest like, like military and kingdom expansionists of all time, so much so that when he died, he had, like, his kingdom was distributed amongst multiple people because it was so vast. So in this particular uh, story, Alexander had just come back from a, su a successful mili military campaign. One of his generals comes up to him and comes to Alexander and says, I've been faithful to you for a really long time. I've been serving faithfully, but I, ha I haven't made a lot of money in the process. We just had this great victory. I was wondering if you could pay for my daughter's wedding. Which all the guys in the room are like, man, that'd be the real deal, right? Like get your daughter's wedding paid for by your boss, awesome. So, but Alexander looks at him and goes, you have been faithful, absolutely. I'll pay for your daughter's wedding. Just go to my treasurer and just get, tell him the amount. Tell him what you want. And so the general goes off to the treasurer and tells, comes to the treasurer and asks for like an exorbitant amount of money, right? Let's say, let's say it's a million dollars, okay? And the treasurer, kind of a financial guy, a little stuffy, a little uptight, you know the type. And uh, maybe you are the type. So comes to him and the general's like, I, Alexander said he would pay for my daughter's wedding. Uh, I'd like a million dollars for it. Well, being financial guy, he gets really angry about that request and is like, but doesn't say anything yet. And he goes, whoa, that's, that's a lot of money. Um, I'm going to have to go back and talk to Alexander. I mean, a million dollars. Like, you could probably get Chick-fil-A to cater on Sunday for a million dollars, right? So, like, that's, that's a lot, okay? So, goes back to Alexander and is just fuming the whole time he's walking back. And it's just like, how in the world could this guy presume upon Alexander's riches to just ask for this exorbitant amount of money? And he just kind of is stewing and stewing and goes to Alexander and says, you won't believe what that ungrateful weasel of a general asked for. He asked for a million dollars. Can you believe it? You should put him 
in prison. You should make a spectacle of him. You should kill him. How, how evil is it of him to presume upon your wealth like that? And as he's going on and on and on, like a financial guy about to lose a million dollars might, Alexander begins to laugh, which just makes the financial guy even more angry. And he's just like, why are you laughing at this? And Alexander turns to him. He says, give it to him. And the financial guy just is about to lose his mind. Like, why in the world would you reward this kind of behavior? Why would you do that? To which Alexander the Great replies, for him to ask me for that means that he believes that I'm rich enough and he believes that I'm generous enough. So give it to him. He believes that I'm rich enough and he believes that I'm generous enough. So give it to him. And here's the danger of the false teaching of and then Jesus theology is that the danger is that believing that something needs to be added to what Christ has done is to dare to say that he's not rich enough and he's not generous enough to pay the full price of your debt. It's to say that his blood was not sufficient. And so now I need to add something to it in order for it to be applied to my life. This was the false teaching of false teachers then. And there's similar false teaching and similar false teachers now. And so you might go at this point, you might still go, well, what's the big deal? Why, why, is, there, why is that still a big deal? I mean, what honestly is at stake? Yeah, that's a, that's a little wonky, that's a little off, but what, what's at stake here? Well, isn't it true that knowing what's at stake really impacts how seriously you take something? Knowing what's at stake impacts how seriously you take something. I'll give you an example. So, uh, so our niece, Eden, so Matt and Shannon's daughter, uh, if you don't know her, you will really soon because Eden is like the friendliest, most extroverted person. I know if you know Matt, Eden is like a three foot tall Matt, just a little smaller, uh, super nice. She's really sweet. Now, Eden has, I think, I think, it's, I think it's 28 severe food allergies. That, and that's not including environmental, right? 28 severe food allergies. And so before she started to go on this like oral immunotherapy for her milk allergy, if she would have had milk, uh, you would have had to, she would have started to have anaphylactic shock. You would have had to stick her with her EpiPen and, and take her to the hospital because she could potentially die from that exposure to milk. Now that is very different than someone who is lactose intolerant. Now, if you're lactose intolerant, I'm not making fun of you, I'm not trying to diminish that, but I'm just saying that there's a difference between milk making you uncomfortable and milk potentially killing you, right? So like if, you, if you're inviting someone over for dinner and they have a severe food allergy, you treat that very, very differently than if someone has a simple intolerance. Maybe if they're intolerant, you try to be mindful of that, you try to accommodate for that, but you aren't reading every little ingredient that could possibly be in everything you make like you would for someone like our niece Eden. And the reason why you would take that so much more seriously is because you recognize what is at stake. So why should elders be able to encourage with sound teaching and refute those who contradict it? What is at stake if false teaching is allowed to exist and grow within the church? Look at verse 11. Here's what's at stake. Paul says, it is necessary to silence them because 
They are ruining entire households by teaching what they shouldn't in order to get money dishonestly. Why this is such a big deal is because false doctrine ruins the family of God and the faith of believers. False doctrine ruins the family of God and the faith of believers because what you believe really, really matters. And how you live will reveal what you actually believe. And false teaching and false teachers must be rebuked, must be silenced, because false teaching ruins lives and capsizes faith. Now, I think the assumption that a lot of us at this point have is that many of us probably think that we aren't susceptible to false teaching and that we aren't susceptible to false teachers. Probably go, yeah, I hear about false teaching, but I mean, that was first century, right? They were kind of unsophisticated. They were uneducated. They didn't quite have the wisdom and discernment. I, though, can understand and can recognize when something isn't true. But I think if we're honest with ourselves, the reality is, is that we're often more enamored by charisma than we are by character. We're often more impressed by charisma than we are by character. You see, these false teachers that were in this church in Crete, they probably had really interesting arguments, really persuasive, sophisticated arguments for why they believe what they believed and why you should believe it too. They're probably likable. They're probably funny. They're probably winsome. They probably added some jokes. They're probably everything that you want in, the, in, in preachers in churches that you go to. You're like, man, I just really hope this message isn't boring, which I can understand. I don't want this message to be boring either. You know that preachers want the message to be less boring than you do? They really, we really do. We don't want you to hate us, right? But that's what we think. We, we go, is this person the kind of person that I would want to listen to? And we look only at that. And we're impressed by that. If someone can get up on a stage and make us laugh and keep our attention and, and give us some little interesting nugget that maybe we can think about and it's kind of helpful as we go about our day. And then we give very, very little attention to the character of the messengers. We'll look for churches and we'll look for leaders who don't disagree with us or challenge us, but instead who will affirm what we already think, even if it clearly goes against God's word and even if it clearly goes against historic Orthodox Christianity. All of us are susceptible to that. All of us will be tempted to want to follow people that we simply like to listen to. And so, since we are all susceptible to false doctrine, since we are all susceptible to following false teachers, how can we determine what is true doctrine and how can we tell who is a false teacher? How can we determine what's true doctrine and how can we tell who is a false teacher? A couple things real quick and then, and then I'll have two final encouragements at the end. So first, how can you determine what is true doctrine? How can you do that? It's, it's actually fairly simple. And I, and I just said it, maybe you didn't catch it. How do you determine whether a teaching or belief is true or not? How do you do that? Ask yourself, first ask yourself, is what is being taught faithful to what God's word teaches? Is what is being taught faithful 
to what God's word teaches. Regardless of how persuasive it sounds, regardless, regardless of how interesting the person is, is what is being taught faithful to what God has actually revealed, to what God has actually said? Which means that even if someone just says, well, the Bible says this, you, you go open your Bible and say, does it actually say that? Someone can say all the time, well, the Bible says this, the Bible says that. And that's not at all what the Bible says. Open your Bibles and see if God's revealed word actually teaches what is claiming to be taught. And then, and this is really important, and then ask yourself, is what is being taught consistent with historic Christian teaching? Is what is being taught consistent with the way that Christians throughout history have understood that issue or topic or have interpreted that scripture. And you might ask, why in the world is that important? Why can't I just take my Bible, go into my closet, it's just me and Jesus, I'm praying, I'm reading, I'm praying, I'm reading, I'm praying, I'm reading, I'm trying to interpret, I'm trying to understand. Why can't I just do that? Why do I have to take into account what, what Christian teaching has been throughout history? The reason is, is because if you only have this just me and the Bible and Jesus mentality when it comes to discerning what is true, what you're doing, it, it, it's incredibly arrogant actually, because what you're saying is that God has not taught or shown or spoken or had anything helpful to say to anyone else who has come, who has lived throughout history up until this point with me. You're throwing in the garbage everything that God has done centuries before you ever existed, which is incredibly arrogant. So ask yourself, is this teaching according to what the Bible teaches? And is this teaching in accordance with what with how Christians have understood this issue, topic, or teaching, or interpretation of scripture throughout history. That's how you determine whether a teaching is true or false. So how do you determine whether a teacher is true or false? Well, quite simply, it's verse 16. They claim to know God, but they deny him by their works. So how do you determine whether a teacher is true or false? Look at their lives. Look at their lives. Do they embody the characteristics that should be true of elders? Are they not arrogant? Are they not hot-tempered? Are they not a bully? Are they not greedy for money? Are they not asking you to like and subscribe so that they can get the advertisement revenue? Take, okay. Can we just say that TikTok pastors are not pastors? We just say that out loud, all right? Please, for the love of God, don't, don't be pastored by TikTok. How about this one? Do they claim to be filled with the Spirit, but then their social media feed is filled with bitter, malicious speech toward those they disagree with? Do they, do they claim to believe in a loving and gracious God, but they themselves refuse to forgive anyone who has perceptually or actually wronged them? Do they claim to believe in a gracious and loving God, but they themselves are controlled by the grudges that they hold? You see, false teachers and false teaching will pop up in the church and will pop up in our church. 
And it's the God-given duty of our elders to refute those who contradict sound teaching, to rebuke them, to silence them because the spiritual life of the church is at stake. Now you might say, well, Jake, that sounds like what Paul's saying here. It sounds awfully intolerant and unkind, right? These words like rebuke, silence, refute. Shouldn't we be more accepting than that? Shouldn't we be more loving than that? Shouldn't we be a little bit more tolerant than that? You know, just kind of have like a conversation, right? Paul, Paul says nothing of having a conversation here. He says, rebuke them, refute them, silence them. That's, that, to be fair, that is intolerant. But here's the thing. It's the kind of intolerance that's represented in the cancer specialist who is working to eradicate, to eradicate cancer from the body of her patient. None of us would look at a cancer specialist and say, oh, why are you being so intolerant? We go, no, your vigilance is warranted because of what is at stake in that person's body in fighting the cancer that is riveting their body. We want our cancer specialists to be intolerant of the very thing that will kill their patient. And God is the great physician who has given his church elders and has called his elders to act like his nurses to care for his people and to assist in eradicating the cancer of false doctrine from his church. So, in light of all this, two encouragements. The first encouragement is to our elders. We have 13 elders here at Candeo. So I'm gonna talk to 13 people right now and the rest of you get to listen, okay? So, first, to my fellow elders, be eager to shepherd. Be eager to shepherd. Be eager to be faithful, biblically saturated, doctrinally solid, exceedingly caring shepherds of our church. Not out of a sense of obligation, not out of a sense of wanting to gain anything, to aspire to any status or, or esteem, but be eager to shepherd out of love for Christ and out of love for his church. To the elders of Candeo, Candeo Church is not our church. But Candeo Church is Christ's church that he has stewarded to us. He has stewarded his bride to us for a short amount of time. So elders, care for his church. Shepherd her, lead her. Do not take advantage of her, but provide for her until the day that he returns to take her to our eternal heavenly home. And the second encouragement is for the rest of you. So elders, be eager to shepherd. And for the rest of you, be eager and open to shepherding from our elders. Be open to shepherding. Notice that this whole section, that it is true that while we all as believers should be alert and aware of false teaching and false teachers that will pop up, that this whole section is still Paul telling Titus what to instruct the elders of the church. And so the reality is that it's possible that you may begin believing false doctrine or, follow, or following false teachers and you will be in need at some point in your life of a shepherd to come alongside you and guide you back into the way of truth. And so church, be open to shepherding because it's very possible that you could come to Candeo for a long time. You could even become a member 
You come to Candela, you could become a member. You could even like in theory agree that as becoming a member that you, will, that you will follow and submit to the leadership of this church. But then when the rubber hits the road, when you start going astray and our shepherds come alongside you to guide you back in the way of truth, it's possible that you, would, that you would do all of those things and say, yeah, yeah, I wanna be shepherded. But then when the rubber hits the road and we actually try to shepherd you, that you would totally resist our leadership in your life. And so church, be open to shepherding. And don't only be open to it, but I would encourage you, if I can just humbly say this, like seek it out. Here's what I mean. A couple weeks ago, I get a text from a guy. He's, he's a young guy in our church. And the text was real simple. He said, said something to this guy. He said, hey, hey Jake, I'm, my wife and I are kind of working through this issue. This thing kind of came up. We don't really know how to approach this or really what to think about it. Would you have a little bit of time at some point in the next week or two to grab coffee? Just because we'd love to kind of hear what you have to say. Is there anything from the Bible that would inform how we would walk forward in this situation? Something like that. This is a really young guy in our church. And the first thing I said when we sat down, first thing I said was, thank you so much for having the wisdom and the maturity to reach out to one of the shepherds of our church to enter into this situation in your life so that I can just come alongside you and hopefully be helpful and hopefully bring the word of God to bear on this, ish, this situation that you have. Just th I was just filled with gratitude that a young guy in our church would recognize that it's probably not wise to go about your life making like important critical decisions and never consulting the spiritual shepherds that exist in your life. So be open to shepherding and also seek out shepherding. So elders, be eager to shepherd and church, be open to shepherding so that so that as we follow Christ together, that we would not be those who claim to know God but deny him by our works, but instead that we would be a people whose lives reflect gospel-fueled good works as we together worship our chief shepherd, our chief shepherd who laid his life down for his sheep so that we could have life in him. Would we be that kind of people? Would we have those kinds of leaders? Would we be that kind of church? Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, you are the chief shepherd of Candeo Church. We all submit to your leadership, submit to your word. We submit to your leading. Oh God, we pray that you would give us the wisdom and the discernment to analyze everything according to your word to determine what is true and what is false according to your word and to help one another stay along the narrow path of righteousness for your glory and our good. Would we be that kind of church? Would we submit to your leadership? Lord, would you help our elders to lead with humility and meekness and wisdom and boldness as those who serve and don't seek to be served. And would we be a church that is not skeptical of authority, but that recognizes that you are the ultimate authority. And so we submit to an authority because we submit to you. Help us by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a message from Candeo Church. 
To learn more about us or to hear more messages, visit us at candeochurch.com.